watcher. First thing off the bat this episode, an apology for the temporal inconsistencies lying in the offing. Four expeditions headed south at the turn of the 19th century, and another five coincided in 1912. Some back and forth wibbly wobbliness became necessary in mapping these events, so as to make the most of the recurring expeditioners, ships and sponsors. Of the four earliest Antarctic visits of the 20th century, I decided to work through the German one first, because Willy Heinrich is my hero, and the British expedition last, because so much of what occurred under Robert Falcon Scott informed what happened in his subsequent visit. When I get to the 1912 stuff, I'll make sure the Brits get first outing, so the narrative threads linking Scott's first and last expeditions to Antarctica are still fresh in listeners' minds. A New Zealand acquaintance has sent me a jar of something brown and powdery, which they assure me is instant coffee. Um, It's one helicopter flight and one Hercules ride away from being undrinkable. But I made the point in the first episode that I care that it's hot and brown and full of caffeine. But this stuff really does deserve the lukewarm dregs from the thermos. So, Germany missed much of the land grab other European nations engaged in during the 19th century, only getting some jungly bits of northeast New Guinea and some arid bits of southwest Africa. Sulking that everyone else got better dominions, German leaders showed no interest in the opportunities offered by Antarctica, or, more precisely, showed no interest in what other people said Antarctica offered by way of opportunities. German historian Karl Fricker published The Antarctic Regions in 1898, exhorting Germans not to neglect their role as scientific leaders, leaving the exploration and attendant scientific discoveries to other nations, specifically citing Belgium and Sweden. If government funding did not materialise, Fricker wrote, private money should fill the gap. On the 24th of February 1898, the Royal Geographic Society hosted a meeting to discuss the future of the exploration and investigation of Antarctica. The speakers included Sir Clements Markham, John Murray, Fritjof Nansen, Joseph Hooker, Georg von Neumeyer, and geologist Sir Archibald Geike. The meeting consensus stated that if we don't understand the processes at work in the Antarctic, a wide range of phenomena operating at lower latitudes won't be fully understood either. Science and international cooperation to the fore, except for Sir Clements Markham. Markham felt exploration provided a means to fuel maritime enterprise and feats of daring doe. Built D-O-E, brackets, sick, brackets. In times of peace, which could then lead to geographic discoveries and not the other way around. Science to the rear and national glory and challenges to bring out the best in naval officers to the fore for Sir Clements. International cooperation was fine and dandy in his book, so long as it wasn't actually cooperating so much as expeditions heading off at the same time, and thereby providing the sense of competition that would spur British officers and sailors to feats of distinction. He would get his international cooperation from the Germans. With German newspapers eagerly reporting the exploratory achievements of other nations, the various German scientific bodies coordinated to form the German South Polar Commission to promote an expedition. 
nominating geographer and geophysicist Eric Dagobert von Drygalski as its leader, based on his experiences leading two expeditions in Greenland in 1891 and 1893, spending a total of four years studying the Arctic glaciers. Drogelsky spoke eloquently in favour of German scientific prowess being kept to the fore at a meeting of the German Colonial Society and the Berlin Geographical Society in 1899, his rhetoric helping to embarrass the government into supporting the mooted expedition through the blessing of the Kaiser, hardware and personnel from the German Admiralty, and funds from the Imperial Home Secretary. Though the proposed two-ship expedition model, so successful under Ross and Crozier, was rejected by government officials. Drogalski could have one ship. The Navy, eager to take part, made sure that that one ship was a good one, purpose-built and fit to purpose, rather than an ad hoc conversion of an existing hull. The Gauss, named after the Prussian mathematician and physicist Carl Friedrich Gauss, who did so much to coordinate the magnetic crusade of the previous century, was built closely on the principles laid down by Colin Archer in making the Fram for Fritjof Nansen. Barkatine rigged with a 580 horsepower auxiliary steam engine, reinforced to blazers and featuring a retractable rudder and screw, she was well iceworthy. Drygalski, perhaps taking another lead from Nansen, thought a small, well-trained team easier to feed and keep entertained through an Antarctic winter than the larger crew more usually associated with a vessel the size of the Gauss. He assembled a crew of 22 seamen, 5 officers and 5 scientists. Provisions for 1,000 days were laid in. The Deutsche Südpolar Expedition was ready to sail to slake the public thirst for geographic and scientific findings and the government and Kaiser's thirst for prestige. I would like to digress for a moment to mention my desire to sail on a German research vessel. I don't drink, but I don't mind working on wet ships, those vessels that allow alcohol consumption, as opposed to dry ships, on which people have to imbibe without official consent. What gets me worked up, what makes or breaks a research voyage for me, is the quality of the food. Once I've stopped vomiting and can keep down something more challenging than bananas, I like hearty food loaded with calories and cooked in oil. I haven't sailed with any of the current German-flagged research vessels, but my experiences of German food during my time in Ottendorf, and the tales I hear from colleagues who've sailed on the Polish Stern or the Sonnet, make me think I would enjoy myself immensely, or at least my tongue and stomach would. The Verst locker is probably not the cabin-sized compartment my imagination draws up, but a ship with any size space dedicated to high-quality sausages is better than a ship without one. I think the Germans stocked the Gauss well, and we'll hear more of the vittles later. Sir Clements Markham, for no reason beyond Britain, divided the Antarctic into quadrants based on the 90-degree meridians, giving each sector British names, Victoria, Ross, Waddell, and Enderby. Again, Britain. The idea behind the quadrant model being that nations select and stick to a particular area to prevent conflicts of interest or redundantly duplicated discoveries. He introduced this slice of British Britishness at the International Geographical Congress in Berlin in 1899 to a bemused audience. Either stunned by his audacity or indifferent to his parochialism, the Germans agreed to work the Enderby sector south of the Indian Ocean. Drygalski thought this for the best, 
figuring the unseen coast held greater scope for exciting discoveries than the already mapped peninsula or Ross Sea. He could, for example, seek an answer to the question of whether Antarctica comprised a single continental landmass or an archipelago of islands. It was at this Congress that Sir Clements also spoke strongly against the use of sled dogs as cruel and unmanly, setting a social moray, for British exploration at least, that would later impact catastrophically on the lives of people on the ice. The Gauss sailed from Kiel on the 11th of August 1901 under the command of Hans Russer, with a full scientific program scheduled for a coastal party and equipment and supplies sufficient for an attempt on the South Pole. Staging through Cape Town, the Gauss reached the Eels Kerguelen on the 2nd of January. And another digression. I don't know where I picked up on the habit of pronouncing I-L-E-S as Eels, but I like it. I might contact some French-speaking friends and see if that's right, but it just I just really like saying eels. Eels. Eels up inside you. Finding an entrance where they can. <clears throat> On the Eels Kerguelen, they established an observatory and dropped off Dr. Joseph Enzensperger as resident astronomer. I find references to the expedition collecting 40 Kamchatka dogs at this point in their voyage, but no reference from whom, so either the book I drew that particular snippet from got the chronology mixed up, or sealers still resided on the Kerguelens and had a load of spare sled dogs kicking around. Either way, the Gauss carried dogs south regardless of Sir Clements Markham's disdain for their use as transport. Sound work, those Germans, ignoring the prima donna. Sadly, Dr. Enzersperger died of beriberi, a thiamine or vitamin B1 deficiency, in 1903, and his remains remain on the eels. The Gauss departed the eels Kerguelen on the 31st of January, and encountered the first iceberg on the 7th of February, then wended its way through increasingly dense pack ice in the following weeks, sighting an ice barrier 40 to 50 metres in height on the 21st of February at around 90 degrees east. At that point, an intense storm closed the pack up, trapping the gauss. The crew applied explosives, but the ice held, and by the 2nd of March, Drygalski recognised they were in place for the winter, around 90 kilometres from the coast. The crew set about establishing the scientific equipment and routines they would dedicate themselves to through the months to follow, using methods and timings arranged to coincide with those of the concurrent British expedition to the Ross Sea. On the 18th of March, 2nd officer, Richard Varsell, led a three-person sledge journey 50 nautical miles from the Gauss. They returned with geological samples from an extinct volcano they discovered, and subsequently named Gaussberg. Ramparts comprising suspected glacial deposits on the flanks of the mountain indicated even larger glaciers than presently present once worked the area over, the first evidence of past glacial maxima any expedition to Antarctica brought to light. On March the 29th, Drygalski made an ascent to a height of 500 metres in a hydrogen balloon. Drygalski took some photographs and reported his observations to the ship using a telephone. Besides the Gaussberg, Drygalski saw ice sloping upward away from the barrier edge to an estimated height of 3 kilometres at the horizon. Drygalski figured summer sledging parties could make a foray to at least 72 degrees south on the observed glacial ice. 
Captain Rusa made a second ascent in the balloon to observe the pack ice conditions to the north, and to make notes about potential weaknesses they might take advantage of in the spring. While this is the first mention of aviation in the series, Drygalski's flight came almost two months after the first balloon ascent in Antarctica, which I'll address in a subsequent episode about Scott and the Discovery Expedition. In early April, a second sledge trip to the Gaussberg erected a shelter for subsequent visits and established a can housing a bottle, housing a report of the voyage to date, and raised a flag to claim the coast between 85 degrees and 95 degrees east, now named Wilhelm II Land, for Germany. A storm hit the third sledge journey, led by Drygalski, while en route to the Gaussberg, stretching the journey out to six days and dropping the temperature to minus 39 degrees Celsius. On arrival, the team rebuilt the shelter left by the previous visitors and subsequently destroyed by the storm, while making magnetic measurements and geologizing. More storms hit them on their return to the Gauss, slowing progress to the point they ran out of food. As they steeled themselves to start killing the weakest dogs to feed those still providing traction, they stumbled on a seal killed by the previous sledging party and left on the ice as a meat depot. With enough food to keep going, the question became which direction to go, the team having lost its bearings. They chose a path, pushed on and got lucky, finding the Gauss by chance rather than the customary precise German measurement and application of method. Unexpected pressure brought to bear by the fickle Antarctic weather almost got the better of the meticulous Drygalski. The months of winter darkness didn't affect the Germans to the same extent as the Belgian expedition. With the Gauss's hull better geared to survive the stresses placed on it than that of the Belgica, no language barriers and excellent equipment and provisions, their experience bore a closer resemblance to winter in a German village than the strained tale of bare survival playing out under de Gerlache's inadequate leadership. Wednesday night brought lectures on a rolling roster. Saturday was grog night, offering a party atmosphere for the band and glee club. Games clubs and cigar smoking clubs sprang up, and the weeks just flew by. Sunday brought out the beer. The Germans were not entirely immune to the cold and dark, and evidence of toast did come to light, but no more so than in northern Europe, and definitely far less acute than aboard the Belgica. Regular storms covered the ship in drift snow, but the Germans dug the companionways clear and carried on. A windmill rigged among the rigging provided electricity. Meteorological kites flew to provide temperature and wind strength profiles. Penguins and seals, more palatable to the German palate than among expeditions from less Sarkatarian nations, were hunted for the pot, the scientific collections, and for recordings of their calls on an Edison phonographic device. The worst the Germans had to say about their winter months came during one of the blizzards, when temperatures of minus 28 degrees Celsius caused some of the beers to freeze and burst their bottles. Willy Heinrich isn't well known among Antarcticans or in diving circles, but where the two sets intersect, he is legend. Willy sailed on the Gauss at the age of 23 as second carpenter and made himself popular among the crew with his inventions and improvements to equipment. Most notably, he built an ice bicycle, which provided much entertainment for the iced-in crew of the Gauss, though it held little practical application to Antarctic transport. 
His time in the German Navy added diving to his skill set, and Vili set many underwater firsts in Antarctica. The first dives below the circle on the 16th of April 1902 involved Vili in a Seed Gorman standard diving dress, one of those big brass helmet and canvas suit rigs with air supplied from the surface. Bulky and stiff, these suits are difficult to use. Add that Vili's dives occurred in the winter darkness in water around minus 2 degrees Celsius under sea ice and required that he cork the hull, and you've got some fairly miserable diving on the go. Caulking is the process of working oakum, rope that's past its usefulness as rope, cut to short lengths and unlaid to its component strands and soaked in pitch or pine tar, into the seams between the boards of a ship's hull to waterproof it. Wooden hulls always leak. The ship's pumps work to remove the resulting water in the bilges, but the better the caulking, the less work for the pumps. The efficiency of the seal provided by caulking gradually decreases as the flexing of a hull in waves or under pressure from pack ice compresses the fibre mass to the point it doesn't have any spring left in it, or it falls out of the seam. Caulking is an ongoing maintenance issue for wooden hulls, and knocking the cork into the seams with the caulking mallets and pins is a dog of a job when the boat's on the slip and he can work in the dry, so I don't like to imagine how hard Willie had it in his cumbersome canvas suit, suspended under the ship in the cold and dark, working a mallet against the resistance of the water. I love that my Antarctic experience came about as a result of my training as a diver, and images of me in my kit among the ice give me a little kick of pride every time someone expresses their interest. But I can hardly claim any special hard as nailsness based on my work under the sea ice. With modern dry suits, a heated dive hut, a standby diver at the ready should anything go wrong, and a hot cup of soup waiting for me if all goes well, modern Antarctic diving is pretty straightforward when compared to what Willy Heinrich did and I tip my hat to the man. Maybe he pissed and moaned about his lot, but I like to think he was stoic as fuck. His popularity among his crewmates certainly doesn't suggest a whiner, and the one picture I can find purported to show Vili gives an impression of someone who gets the job done with a minimum of fuss. Props to Vili Heinrich. Stoic or pissant, he was the first. As spring arrived, Drygalski faced a dilemma. Should his efforts focus on trying to reach further south than the Gaussberg, which at 66 degrees 40 minutes south barely ducked below the circle, or on freeing the ship? The balloon work in March showed sledgeable ice to at least 72 degrees south, but working the sledging parties from where the Gauss lay might preclude their finding better access to inner Antarctica than their current fairly pants position and while the ship was presently in no danger and well stocked, Drygalski wanted an opportunity to report back to Berlin on their achievements to date. He opted to work on getting the ship free. The sea ice around the Gauss ranged from 5 to 6 metres thick. Spring temperatures saw some ice break out, but at least 600 metres of unbroken ice lay between the Gauss and saleable water. The crew kept deliberately small to make the most of the supplies, might have liked a few more backs to share the load placed on their own in the next months, as the six metre ice saws made an appearance, and a rigorous schedule of soaring and explosions sought to free the ship. They made little progress, the ice giving every impression of remaining fast through the warmer months.
Captain Russo suggested setting accounts of their voyage adrift in bottles, and that the balloon be employed to carry more such bottles north on a favourable wind, to let the world know what they'd achieved, and that they would be spending another winter in the south. It was at this point Drygalski noticed that where the soot from the ship's funnel fell in the snow, the surface became mushy underfoot. The black soot, lowering the albedo of the ice surface, absorbed more heat than the surrounding area and pushed the uppermost snow past the latent heat of melting. The crew downed saws and began plastering a trail of soot and any other dark waste material from the ship to the nearest workable water. Within a month, a two-metre-deep channel melted, but with three metres of solid water still below the ship's keel, this wasn't enough on its own. Toward the end of December, the crew experienced the first rain since being iced in, and the comparatively warm water helped deepen and widen their soot-mediated channel. On the 8th of February, the ship floated in its own little pool, as their channel formed the weak point along which the ice finally cracked. The signal went out. All hands returned to the Gauss. Sailing from their winter quarters, Drygalski headed the Gauss east to seek out a better position from which to make future inland forays. The expedition spent two months making slow progress in close ice conditions before turning for Cape Town, which they reached on the 9th of June in 1903. Drygalski sent telegrams to Berlin seeking permission to spend another year in the south. On comparing the Deutsche Südpolar Expedition's achievements with the interim reports from the National Antarctic Expedition under Scott, the Kaiser felt unimpressed and refused Drygalski's request. Opting to optimise the well-being of his crew and to seek the best situation for sledging cost Drygalski his chance to continue the work. Had the ship been allowed to stay in place while sledges set off south, no one could have ordered the Gauss home and the Germans might have achieved achievements more pleasing to their Kaiser but they also might have been iced in permanently. No one held enough data to recognise the ice of those years constituted particularly challenging conditions, so I think even with the benefit of hindsight, Drygalski made a sound precautionary decision. Wilhelm II didn't see it that way, and ordered the Gauss back to Kiel, which they reached on the 29th of November. Where his government expressed disappointment in their achievements primarily because they didn't set any records or bag any notable firsts, the Royal Geographic Society praised Der Deutsche Südpolar Expedition at a meeting chaired by Sir Thomas Holditch, Sir Clements Markham being absent. Sir John Murray gave the expedition the weirdly British backhanded compliment of recognising that in the thousand kilometres of coastline charted to link the Knox, Kemp and Enderby land coasts, the Germans, quote, proved by their work that this continent exists where we predicted it would be found. Way to claim achievements not yours to claim, Sir John. The scientific findings of Der Deutsche Südpolar Expedition wrote up into 20 volumes of reports in the years between 1905 and 1931. Drygalski took up a professor... Took up a... Drygalski took up a professor... <laughs> Drygalski took up a Drygalski took on a professorship in Munich and went on further expeditions to Spitsbergen, North America and Asia, but did not return to Antarctica, and German interest in the far south would not rekindle for a decade. The expedition established connectedness between known land masses, but, 
in spite of John Murray's attempt to steal Drygalski's thunder, no one could definitively state that Antarctica comprised a single continental landmass rather than an archipelago of islands. Many of the podcasts I listen to deservedly get nominated for and receive awards, and I recently got the idea I should institute a prize in my own field. I have a scale model of Hubert Wilkins' Lockheed Vega I'm willing to turn into a perpetual annual trophy for the best Antarctic history podcast output. Until one of you gets your arse into gear and gives me some competition, I'll make do by awarding myself an extra spoon of coffee in today's brew, and double chocolate rations. Take care, and enjoy coffee that's better than this. I don't want to get sued for mentioning the brand, but anyone that's lived in New Zealand will know what I mean if I say dregs. Thank mm-hmm. you.